personal, I think it's a hard-headed look at what is happening around the world. So personally, uh, as I was telling you off air, look, uh, my wife is from the United Kingdom. Um, I, I like to tell her I'm more British than she is, is because uh, I'm part Māori. Uh, three of my four grandparents are from the United Kingdom. Uh, and, you know, I can trace my history back there over many centuries. So there's that personal connection, but the hard-headed connection seems to me is, look, uh, it's, it's trite to say, but we, we live in an incredibly uncertain world. Uh, I think it's a more dangerous world than it has been for some time uh, with the, the, the various uncertainties with what's happening between the US and China, whatever the administration. And so simply put, I think that means we want friends and you, you want friends who are those you share values with and history with, and that's the Commonwealth. And so I personally have a a pretty expansive view of the Commonwealth. I think uh, it's not done by any means. It's got a, a real second or third wind uh, left in it. Uh, and that's why, look, in New Zealand, I've been unashamedly a proponent for things like Kanzuk, uh, which we've mentioned. I'm very uh, uh, delighted to see the moves by the UK when it comes to things like CPTPP, which is obviously slightly different, but it, it, it's all part of... Uh, uh, having friends, being multilateral, outward looking uh, in a more uncertain and dangerous world. We'll, we'll touch on Kanzuk uh, a bit later on uh, today. Um, and it's great to speak, uh, see you speak so positively about the Commonwealth. And it, it seems that the National Party in general uh, speak and think quite highly of the Commonwealth and the UK. What, what do you think um, the people of New Zealand feel about the Commonwealth? And do you believe it people there still have an appetite amongst them to build strong ties? Look, I think they do. And Kanzuk has done some polling survey type work shows that actually, or indicates, New Zealanders are as forward leaning on this as anyone uh, amongst those other um, uh, countries such as Canada, uh, Australia, and the, and the United um, Kingdom. I mean, New Zealand, uh, again, a bit trite, but has been on a journey. Uh, it's a situation where um, very much, if you go back to my mother's generation, and she, uh, she, she uh, sees herself as a proud Yorkshire woman, um, it's a situation there where she would say, uh, that is home. And she watches uh, Coronation Street, uh, uh, Emmerdale Farm, uh, I'm not even sure if they still make that, but growing up, they were, and, and they reminded her of, uh, of where she came from. That, that view has faded somewhat. Uh, New Zealand now proudly pitches itself as uh, uh, part of the Asia Pacific or the Indo-Pacific as we say these days. Um, it, it, it's probably a term people don't use these days and maybe has certain connotations, but if you want to put it this way, our sphere of influence where we are part of a family is in the Pacific with Pacific Island nations like Samoa and Tonga uh, and many others. But still, whilst you're not a million miles, but many, many thousands of miles away, as I've said, our history and our values go back to the United Kingdom and Europe very strongly. Still, the majority of New Zealanders trace their ancestry there. Still, uh, it's the country where when people in New Zealand go on what we call our OE, our overseas experience, we want to go. Uh, still, it's where so many of us have our partners from and relatives living and so on. So for all of these reasons, 
I think New Zealand's still very well disposed to the UK. Um, still sees it, perhaps not family, that's going a bit far, but as part of, you know, what, what, what we're about. Um, I think if I can offer a personal reflection as someone who's met ministers in uh, uh, governments uh, in the United Kingdom, there was a time, of course, um, where the UK was very much Europe focused and still many will say is and should be. Uh, but what is true, regardless of your view of Brexit, is that in a, in a situation now uh, where we're post-Brexit, that does necessarily mean actually it's time for the UK to look out and about a bit as well. And that's a real opportunity, I think, for New Zealand. I want to talk about your political journey um, and how you almost became involved in politics. Uh, I understood you were a lawyer uh, before becoming an elected member of Parliament in 2008. What drove you into politics? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose I'm like uh, most people. Um, I, I grew up in a, in a family that was not at all political. Uh, there's no politicians uh, really in my family tree. Uh, there's, there's no connections. Um, uh, it, it's a very uh, working class New Zealand uh, out, out, uh, upbringing that I had. What, what is true, though, is that uh, growing up, um, we'd watch the TV news religiously, and we would talk about those things. And for me, uh, look, young, uh, politics was uh, something I, I caught hold of. Um, I, I, I didn't naturally have to be a conservative in the National Party. Um, very similar to the UK, we've got the, the National Party or the, the Conservative Party, and we have the, the, the Labour Party. But uh, even growing up working class, the values of freedom, of success, of pulling yourself up and self-reliance, uh, of security, responsibility, these things worked for me. And I joined the National Party very young. I think it was 15, 16. Um, uh, I think they say, that, you know, it makes me a bit of an anorak probably, but that's, that's what it was. Uh, and I got involved. I did law. I studied law. Um, but uh, that, that, that fire of politics in me never left. And uh, look, I was 32 uh, when I became a member of parliament. It was a, a quirky story. It almost didn't happen. Uh, and probably if it, it didn't, if it hadn't, I'd still be a, 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 a lawyer uh, doing a, a criminal law jury, jury trials in New Zealand. But um, I went to parliament and uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a blast. How has your experience been uh, in politics, uh, especially as a, a Maori? You know, you, you became the first person with Maori ancestry to serve as a leader of uh, any major party in New Zealand. Were there challenges you faced initially as a Maori in politics? Um, you know, it's a very complex uh, issue in New Zealand. Um, the statements that are that are easy to make get you in trouble back in New Zealand, uh, but. But the reality is, uh, going back actually to Victorian times, New Zealand has had uh, uh, relatively, um, dare I say it, certainly in comparison to the Australians, enlightened uh, humanitarian a position to race relations. We have a Treaty of Waitangi signed in 1840, which is now a, a bedrock constitutional and political document. And so I don't feel uh, 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 a product of discrimination, or disadvantage, uh, I've always felt uh, an equal. 
And yet on the other side of that, Sunil, um, I am only the 10th equal uh, Maori member of parliament to hold what we call a general constituency, uh, where all voters vote. Uh, prior to that, uh, you know, as I say, there'd only be nine others and Maori members of parliament came to parliament from these specific Maori seats uh, were only Maori voted. And so in that regard, uh, you know, there are a few firsts uh, for, for me and um, I don't take those, uh, those, those lightly. Um, since then, I, I was lucky. Uh, I was lucky in parliament that John Key, uh, our prime minister for seven, eight years, uh, saw something in me. Um, he kept giving me opportunities. I, I had thought going into parliament, I would be lucky if I became a select committee chair and, you know, was able to kind of play that role. But um, uh, in a small democracy, I did rather better than that. And yeah, as I say, I mean, it, it has been a blast. There's been some highs and some real lows, uh, as I think happens in any uh, uh, significant uh, political career. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I still enjoy it. Uh, and that's, that's why I still do it, because it's about people, it's about power, uh, it's about life. One thing I saw that was interesting um, with Jacida Arden's Labour government, I think they held that uh, they brought in the record number of Maori MPs. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think it's harder for Maoris to come out and be supportive of the National Party? As, as often an issue in the UK we face is sometimes ethnic minorities are almost expected to vote for Labour Party. Is that something similar in New Zealand? There is a sense of that. Um, can I just say on the UK, I think it is, and I'd say this from a long way away and, and, um, and perhaps with some reticence, but when I look at what Boris Johnson and the Conservatives have done, um, it's a situation where clearly merit rules and, you, you know, whether it's your Chancellor or your Home Secretary or many others, you have outstanding uh, uh, contributors, um, you know, who may well, any one of them, go on to have the highest office in your land. So I think it's very exciting to see what the Conservatives are doing. I understand, though, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, actually in voter numbers, uh, it is still the Labour Party that dominates uh, there, despite that, you know, um, uh, sense of momentum, or I sense anyway from a long way away in the Conservatives. It is a similar picture in New Zealand. Um, you could make the same sort of comparisons. Uh, I, I very simplistically would say there's two ways you can vote if you're a Maori New Zealander. You can vote on those Maori rolls. There are six Maori seats um, where you have to identify as Maori to vote. They um, nearly all, uh, there is a quirk called the Maori Party, um, and I, we could get into that and go talk for a long time on that, but they nearly all and traditionally have been Labour seats. Um, what is also true, though, is there are many other Maori, uh, another, uh, another several hundred thousand who, like me, vote on the general role. We don't um, want to be just there voting as a Maori on Maori issues. They're not the only things that we care about and we are on the general role and on the general role actually the national party the equivalent of your conservative party does just as well as it does with any other grouping and so in fact it, it's a nuanced picture um, those maori on the maori role who are, are very animated by um, uh, issues of uh, the language uh, te reo we call it uh, uh, the treaty of waitangi these things they are there with the Labour Party, but
but there's a there's a, a growing middle class of Maori um, who are very much uh, thinking about what they do and can be won by the National Party. I want, I want to stick to uh, domestic matters, in, in particular some of the challenges facing uh, the New Zealand National Party. I think I think it's great that you, you've described yourself as a compassionate conservative. As and I think one of the reasons I think there seems to be uh, almost a new trend, which is that compassion and sympathy can only be shown by the left, and and often their way of stopping articulate and logical arguments to say that they care more about a situation and. Um, you know, and we as conservatives don't care enough. And I think it's a trend we're seeing uh, globally. How do you combat this? And how do you show people that the National Party has compassion and cares alongside the important economic arguments that your party and you make? Look, it's a great question, Sunil. It's a very difficult one. Um, just as you have those issues and what you've described as accurate in your country, uh, so it is in New Zealand. And... Uh, there's a sense with which um, the left talk about these things better. Um, I feel like the National Party is much more uh, transactional. We just want to get the outcomes. We're not going to talk about it all the time and wax lyrical and emote on our intentions in relation to racial equality and class and, uh, 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 and, and so on. We just want to do the job. In a New Zealand context, though, I think what has worked from the National Party, and when I was leader, certainly worked uh, for us and saw us, actually the most popular political party, even in opposition uh, in, in the land, was a sense that much of what Labour does is intentional. Uh, it sounds great, but the outcomes aren't there in reality. Whereas for the National Party, actually, we do get the, the outcomes. And right now in New Zealand, uh, it's a situation through COVID-19, where yeah, at one level, we've done a good job on COVID, but uh, house prices and the inflation is the highest we've ever seen, uh, where the, the inequality, uh, the gap between the haves and the have-nots are growing faster uh, than, you know, again, I would make the contention New Zealand's possibly ever seen. We long-term issues of our economy, uh, productivity uh, and wages are, are really problematic. And, you know, so for, for national, um, I think it's about um, having good old, practical, sensible solutions to these issues. Jacinda Ardern, our Prime Minister, is a wonderful emoter. She's a great talker. She's a brilliant communicator. She has a degree in communications. But when it comes to outcomes, actually, I say, you know what, look to the Conservatives. Um, we have the practical solutions. And we had a hard election the last election. Right now, we need to be in um, policy, practical policy mode, thinking about how we'll um, bring solutions to our, our rampant housing inflation, um, an inability to build enough houses for our people, um, uh, issues of wage inequality uh, and, and the like. You mentioned COVID-19 there, and it seems, um, obviously, for us, we, we've had a uh, it's had a huge impact on us for this past year, and uh, the number of deaths continue to rise. New Zealand, on the other hand, um, I think it's been just 26 reported deaths. Um, where has it, if you'd like, gone right in terms of New Zealand's um, uh, lockdown restrictions, COVID, in terms of how they've had such a lot less cases, a lot less deaths. Obviously, you know, there are 
basic geography uh, differences between our two countries, our population density is a lot higher. Um, so what do you think New Zealand have done right in terms of COVID-19? And are there areas in which you think they could have done better? Firstly, uh, you, you're right. New Zealand has had a very good response. And, uh, you know, I said you right at the start. Well, I sit here, the sun is shining. Um, I can go for a walk. I can go to a cafe. I can do any of these things and complete freedom. Actually, where I live um, in a little city called Tauranga, you know, it's it's just not up, uppermost on many New Zealanders' minds. We're going about a business. Now, we can't travel. I'd love to go and visit my relatives and some politicians in the United Kingdom. But outside of that, it's great. And many things about the response were excellent. Look, uh, we locked down. Uh, we, in some respects, shut our borders. Uh, we've had some stringent controls in place. Uh, and that has given us inside our bubble, inside New Zealand, a relative freedom. You also made, though, an incredibly salient point, and one where... It, it means I think I wouldn't be overly hard on your uh, uh, your government and the response or other countries, much larger democracies, because the reality is we have some huge national natural advantages. We have a moat that stretches for thousands of miles. Um, the same is true for Australia at a level. And so uh, getting here is much harder. We just don't have that proximity of population, half a billion people around us the way uh, you do. Within New Zealand, it's low population and low population density. So these natural factors are very important. I, I see the challenges ahead is uh, uh, pretty significant. And to me, honestly, they center around a bit of complacency in New Zealand. Like I said, I described a situation that's pretty good here. Um, but for you in the UK, uh, again, from this side of the world, I look there and I see a country where, yeah, you've had significant fatalities. It's been a tough time. Politically, it's been bruising. But now you know the story where you were vaccinating fast, doing a much better job than around the, the, the EU. And the numbers are amazing. My father-in-law's uh, had his two jabs and he's feeling really chipper uh, about that in the UK. Here... Given we've done such a good job, we're a bit slow on some of that stuff, in, in my humble view. We've just started this weekend vaccinating the emergency workers, the border uh, uh, workers. Um, and I wouldn't want to see, having done such a good job, us complacent now, because that will mean actually for our economy, for our people, uh, a slower re-entry into the world when that comes. And I'm not naive about that. You know, there's... There's many uh, intricate difficulties about that. There hasn't been the thought I detect there has been in Australia and the UK on things like a, a, a digital COVID passport and the sort of things that I'm sure other countries will want from us. As a small island nation, we start wanting to get out, grow our economy again, um, trade, um, have person-to-person -person meetings, all, all of these things. So it's been good. But um, just because it's good doesn't mean we can kind of be complacent and not do the good job you were doing, for example, on the vaccine and the hard thinking about how we get back out into the world that's going to be so necessary for our, our country's long-term future. Uh, another thing I wanted to discuss with you, I saw one of your tweets recently uh, and regarding social media and censorship. It's been long debated on our platform 
on the increasing power some of the social media firms are having and whether they should have uh, this power in terms of controlling what people can and can't say. What are your thoughts on the censorship that's happened in the last few weeks, in particular by the social media firms? In short, I don't like it. Um, you, you know, I'm I'm now National's uh, justice spokesperson. I suppose that's the equivalent, very rough, roughly, of your Home Office secretary. Uh, and so it's incumbent on me to be thinking about these things. And I detect in New Zealand, just as you know, will be happening in the United Kingdom, it's happening in the US, happening in Canada, Australia, um, India, but many other countries. Um, something of uh, a battle in this, this area. Um, in New Zealand, we've got a situation where uh, following uh, terrorist attacks on March the 15th, uh, 2019, uh, the government has uh, had an inquiry. And out of that, one of many good recommendations are recommendations around hate speech and moving more strongly than we have in the past into that area. I sit there though and I say, you know, um, it may be well-intentioned, uh, but actually those hate speech changes the government clearly looks to make, they have no logical correlation to those attacks and one hateful man and what he did. Um, uh, it, you know, I, I think of what Voltaire said, you know, um, I hate everything you said, I'm paraphrasing, but I defend uh, to the death your right uh, to say it. And that's where I come from uh, as a conservative in some regards, uh, certainly a classical liberal in other uh, regards. I want to see a tolerant society where different views can be expressed. That brings me to Facebook uh, and those social media giants. Um, you, you know, I, I take the view that I think increasingly we're seeing in the West that you could just say, well, they're private companies. This is private. And classical liberal, liberal theory says they should be free to do whatever they want. I think, though, in reality, that's not the real game here anymore. We are talking about corporations bigger than nearly any country's GDP. We're talking about corporations that control our public sphere. I don't know what it's like quite in the UK, but I can tell you I hold public meetings uh, in my city. I'm lucky if I get 30, 40, 50, 70 people to those. Well, on Facebook, of course, it's millions. That's where issues, ideas are aired, are debated. And so when Facebook controls that, um, they are limiting our, our political space uh, and our freedoms. So I look at what's happened to Aussie, I don't like it. Uh, I look at other things that are going on and I, and I do think, and you, I hate this, this is, should be a, a phrase um, conservatives very rarely use, but I do think we've got to a point where we do have to start thinking about uh, the rules. Uh, and, and how we ensure those public space spaces are, are ones that, that don't overly censor, uh, that, that at a level are responsible. Um, New Zealand's not going to do that by itself. We're too small. Uh, but globally, uh, there's the conversation and the changes to be had. I think what we saw in Australia in the last week shows that it's going to be a fight, though. Um, uh, these corporations aren't going to give up their control, their arbitrary powers, uh, without a real fight. Do, do you think regulation could be the answer? I mean, we've had so many different um, people on this platform talk about different potential solutions um, to social media firms. The general sort of consensus that we found is that a lot of people are just not happy with the fact that 
your Mark Zuckerbergs, Jack Dorsey, these are unelected officials, if you like, who hold arguably more power than any single politician um, across the globe. And one of the potential things that we talk often about, and it's not really a conservative thing to talk too much about, but would no. be regulation. Um, mm. do, you, do you think that has potential scope in, in helping that issue? Look, regrettably, we don't want to jump into it. I hate that um, but politics has become this area where, oh, here's a topical issue, let's jump in and regulate it. Uh, but in this area, I think that's where it is uh, unavoidably going. In New Zealand, I don't know what it's like, Sunil, in uh, the UK, but it's dangerous even for politicians on the centre-right to talk too much about Donald Trump, right? Uh, the media has been so clear one way, and so we just don't get too much into that. But whatever you think about Trump, uh, and in my view, clearly um, uh, bad behaviour uh, by him, the reality is he was taken off Twitter uh, by a group within a company where we have no sense of what their conditions were, what their uh, basis, uh, and the way they went about that. That's arbitrary power. In Australia, with Facebook, the same, uh, a, a sense with which actually uh, Facebook just took stuff down. By the way, it was very cack-handed. They ended up taking down fire departments and police departments and all of these other things which were essential services on their platform. That, to me, inevitably leads to a view where you say, you know what, actually, we are going to create rules. New Zealand can't do it by ourselves. We're 5 million people. Um, Facebook can clobber us. Uh, but internationally, uh, and that's why it's so important that we're talking like this, internationally, like-minded countries with good values uh, can stick, step up together and put in place rules not to stop Facebook, look, Overall, it's been a fantastic platform, but to make sure there's some rules in the game. So I think for us on, on Donald Trump, whenever you we mention his name or say his name or you, you come to a point, normally it's the you have to have the disclaimer, which is I know it's Donald Trump, and then you can carry on Correct. with your point. Um, so that's kind of how it works for us in, in the UK. So you know, an example of the, the censorship was we, we discussed a lot in the sense of uh, it is Donald Trump, but you know it's subjective those comments to what you may think is hate speech and I may not and it's it goes down a sort of slippery slope of what actually is hate speech you know some things 99% will probably agree on but it's that small margin where it's, it's very difficult to objectively say that, that is hate speech so I think that's kind of what we've had a lot on this platform um, on, on discussions about um, I, I, we talked about it a bit earlier I and mean, you, you touched on it uh, which was uh, Kansuk um, the National Party seems very strong uh, on its support for Kanzuk. For our listeners, that's Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the UK. Uh, we had two senior uh, National Party members in Judith Collins and Simon O'Connor both speak about how much they value a potential Kanzuk agreement earlier this week. And I wanted to get your personal thoughts on what you feel a Kanzuk agreement can look like. Mm. Yeah, I mean, look, I've already been clear how much I think it's a it's a great concept if you like if you want to put it that way we had at our national party uh, caucus retreat at the start of this year um lord daniel hannon uh virtually i think he was a newly minted lord that morning uh come along and talk to us about kanzuk and where he saw it going and i think that certainly galvanized our party with a sense that you know we're, we're we're into this we think this is a really good uh initiative that can as we say in new zealand get legs and 
and go uh, some somewhere. Uh, Judith Collins, our leader, is very much on, on board. Uh, the other person who is, you mentioned, Simon O'Connor. He's another member of parliament. He's my brother-in-law. I wouldn't want you to think that everyone's related in New Zealand politics, <laughs> we're not, but that's, 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 uh, that is that, and he's very much a uh, proponent of this and going to be chairing, uh, I think, the parliamentary group uh, that will be, uh, or party group that will be uh, a, a proponent of Kanzok. Look, where do I see it going? Clearly, um, if you look at the work that's come out from the, the Secretariat, um, it, it is in relation to free movement, uh, trade. Uh, they look at, for example, the uh, example of um, closer economic relations, as we call it, between Australia and New Zealand. Is perhaps something that could be moved uh, wider uh, or expanded. And I, I'm up for all of, of that personally. I think uh, uh, until there's problems, we should see it as something we just keep uh, working on and moving uh, towards. But I would also say, Sunil, I see it as wider than that. Um, I, I, I see it um, uh, as, and, and I'm not suggesting this is entirely unproblematic, but as, as a wider values cultural piece um, in a world where, uh, as I've already alluded, um, the US and China uh, uh, have more difficult relations or lack of relations than ever before. Um, we, we need these wider cultural friends. So I'm simply saying to you, I don't just see it as economic. I'd like to think uh, it can be more than that. I think it's a good time for it uh, with the UK uh, being where it is and positioned where it is in relation to Brexit and, and out there wanting to be outward focused. Um, I would say um, I, it's been so nice between you and I, but maybe I can have one slight dig uh, at the United Kingdom. You know what, what a little player like New Zealand has found that's been a real leader in uh, free trade and multilateral organisations, going back to you know uh, uh, the League of Nations, uh, the United Nations and other big multilateral uh, bodies, is you know we, we want to see that uh, much bigger countries than us, like the UK, actually walk the talk and don't just talk the talk. Um, we would have liked to have seen more progress on a free trade deal between our countries. But as so often the case, um, you, you know, um, arguments about um, lamb and uh, agriculture and these things bog these things, uh, these things down. Um, I'm ambitious. I think, I think actually one great thing about New Zealand is we're ambitious across the political spectrum, left and right. We want to break down tariffs and borders and be more, uh, be more multilateral. Um, and, and, and so we look for, from the likes of the UK, to see that real leadership there as, as, as well. Um, some walk with the talk, I suppose, what I'm saying. It's interesting um, talking New Zealand to UK specifically. Um, I, I remember you, you saying towards the end of 2019 um, that you felt the New Zealand government uh, at the time, uh, or currently still in government, uh, weren't taking the free movement deal with the UK seriously and that there were potential uh, trade, agreement, uh, trade agreements with the UK as well as freedom of movement deals uh, almost in place in, in previous administrations with John Key uh, as Prime Minister and uh, the uh, Jacinda Ardern administration hadn't done much in terms of taking that forward. Um, first of all, what was your experience in discussing um, deals and just generally with the Conservative Party 
Um, and do you think something should have happened by now, uh, whether it be more work from the Conservative Party in the UK or uh, Jacinda Ardern's New Zealand uh, Labour Party? You know, so much of this, Sunil, is um, personal. Um, and we we are not equals at any level. You know, I, I, as I say, well, maybe on the rugby field, we're a bit more than equal than uh, the United Kingdom. But in some other areas, you know, uh, the, the disparity is huge. We are, as I say, 5 million. Um, uh, you are many times larger than that. Uh, there, there are some real differences. But still, we can make personal to personal and share a connection uh, and a bear and, uh, and, and, uh, and get somewhere. And, and I simply say this because I detect um, a real shift uh, around Brexit and Brexit and post-Brexit. Um, I met with members of parliament, both from the left and the right in the UK as a minister. And uh, in truth, sometimes uh, one got the sense, you know, actually they um, had other fish to fry very busy with EU uh, issues and uh, issues in the Northern Hemisphere rather than old friends uh, like New Zealand. Because with Brexit, I do detect that's changed. Um, you know, I, I met with your Prime Minister when he was Secretary uh, uh, of State of Foreign Affairs. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I got a real sense from him, this is pre-Brexit, that you know what, actually, um, he did value the sort of things we're talking about, Commonwealth, old friends, the values, and that personal warmth was there in his values about uh, UK-New Zealand relations. Likewise, in Liz Trust, uh, your, uh, uh, your, your trade um, minister, that same uh, sense of, of that. So I think through those personal relationships, we will get somewhere. I've been candid with you. I think um, there is a view in the National Party that on uh, trade, um, which isn't just about trade, uh, it is about that broader relationship. You know, perhaps the UK has been a bit slower than the rhetoric. Um, and perhaps we can get somewhere on that um, uh, with rather more um, uh, uh, speed uh, than, than we, we, we have. Um, but I do think I'm still optimistic as the UK does things like joins CPTPP, um, as more in the Conservative Party um, uh, think about things such as Kanzok, um, we'll get there. It might not be as quickly as I would like, uh, but we will, uh, we, we will get there. I want to discuss actually more about trade and in particular the comprehensive and progressive agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. Now, Honestly, I don't enjoy saying the name or even the, the simple form of CPTPP, but it's a big talking point right now. And for our listeners who aren't sure of the agreement, it's essentially a free trade agreement amongst 11 countries and their economies um, account for 13.3% of the world GDP with uh, a total of around uh, $10.6 trillion. New Zealand, obviously, uh, play an important role in the agreement uh, as one of its members. And we here in the UK have applied to join um, do you believe that the UK could play a vital role in that agreement? And more importantly, I wanted to get your take on these sort of free trade agreements. And is that something that you are for and something that you maybe feel the UK should be doing more in? Well, I've, um, in my politics, uh, in the National Party in New Zealand, grown up in a uh, milieu where, um, you know what, we're free traders. And uh, um, that's kind of, uh, no, not unthinking, but it's a bit no ifs, no buts. We believe in it. We believe in its power. Um, for a small country, really, you can't 
you can't get past it. Um, uh, you need friends, you need to be outward looking if you're going to create wealth. New Zealand's never going to get rich selling to itself. So, you know, we are all for more, uh, not less uh, in this uh, area. Uh, on that basis, 100%, I know uh, we support the UK's uh, accession uh, to uh, the CPTPP. Uh, and, uh, you know, on that, can I just say, Sunil, the reason it's CPTPP is because it was TPP, uh, but then we saw progressives like Jacinda Ardern and uh, uh, the Prime Minister of Canada get in, and they needed, having opposed it so strongly for so long in opposition, they needed to pretend somehow it had changed. Uh, and so they put a CP in front of it, and that's how we got CPTPP, which makes it entirely unpronounceable, even though the actual agreement changed really not a, a, a jot. Um, New Zealand's been an important player. We, I think, still hold the secretariat. Um, and, you know, we're there at the start driving it, and, and so that is sort of that. And I would just say to your, uh, you know, your viewers, who I suspect are primarily in the UK, this is good for New Zealand. Uh, it's good for the UK. I can't see how it can be anything but uh, post-Brexit. Um, actually, it's good for the world. And that's maybe a big claim, but it's a statement from the likes of the UK that you're outward looking, you want to join up, you want to be part of uh, clubs uh, that can continue to grow and be dynamic. Um, and I would just get in this little plug uh, for New Zealand, which Daniel Hannon uh, and great shamelessly ingratiated himself with uh, to the national party members at our caucus, but it's a fact we love and and, and we know is uh, is absolutely true. There's uh, a study not that long ago that shows that uh, in terms of carbon miles, uh, uh, it, it is more carbon efficient to get some lamb from New Zealand. Uh, into, um, let's go, um, Sainsbury's. Is Sainsbury's still going? I think it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in London than it is from Wales. Uh, and that to me shows you uh, in very real terms that the things Adam Smith wrote about, uh, you know, what is it, two or three centuries ago, are still as real today. Specialization, independence, um, uh, uh, free trade. They're things worth going for. Actually, they're better for uh, economies. And they're better for the environment, uh, actually, uh, if people who know what they're doing are doing what uh, they do best where they do it. Um, it's interesting you mentioned Adam Smith. We have a lot of uh, listeners and members who are huge Adam Smith fans, and he uh, plays a big role still today for a lot of the Conservative Party members and general team. Um, Wonderful actually... to hear. Wonderful uh, to hear. I, I think uh, sometimes in this uh, woke world of ours, I can say that we we move on to many other new bright and fancy things, but um, actually the likes of uh, uh, Mr. Smith and a few others that uh, uh, hopefully our parties still believe in uh, at their core um, are relevant and applicable. It's interesting you mentioned woke. I think it's probably one of our uh, least favorite words on this platform. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> and it's something that we sorry. Been, uh, I, I... probably criticized a, a lot for not being woke enough. Um, and it's, it's an interesting point that you, you've sort of raised in that how does the New Zealand National Party combat that? You know, it's, it's, a, it's an issue that the Conservative Party face in this country, um, in, especially with its younger, uh, younger, younger voters in the sense of um, there is a real rise in the far left, if you like. And 
it is growing pretty strong in the UK. For us, it seems like it was just a social media thing. So, you know, on social media, if you go on Twitter, Facebook, um, the far left are outranking uh, anyone towards the centre or centre right. And, you know, for us, it was almost seen as with the election results, it's just social media. It's not an actual reflection of the country. The results came in. You know, Conservatives won by such a big landslide. However, in New Zealand, obviously, that's not quite been the case. So is that a big issue for you guys facing this sort of far left emergence? Is that a battle oh, yeah. for the National Party? Yeah, I mean, look, I, uh, uh, in our own very small Twitter sphere ecosystem, and I'm a much well-hated figure <laughs> on Twitter. And, uh, and you know, I think uh, whilst I'm not insensitive to that, um, you know, and we want to make sure we're hearing different perspectives. Um, what is also true is, you know, as you've said, uh, Twitter is not the world. Um, it's not where that guy in the white lorry um, or, you know, uh, the woman working hard and picking up her kids and struggling um, actually is. And so we just need to be mindful of that. You know, these issues are very um, much top of mind in the National Party in New Zealand. Um, we, we, we are a marriage, um, perhaps somewhat like the Conservative Party, but in your name, it perhaps belies the liberalism there. We are a marriage in New Zealand in the National Party between good old-fashioned liberals, um, you know, uh, and um, um, often more urban, um, as you say, uh, sometimes younger, um, and a more conservative in the, the real sense of that word, um, a rump of a party as well, that may be more rural, uh, maybe older. And we have been that marriage uh, since the inception of the National Party, uh, you know, nearly a hundred years ago. And that's been reflected in the leadership of the party where one might be the liberal and one might be the conservative. And we have balanced that, that yin and the yang, if you like. Uh, today, um, you know, as we false, uh, face um, big economic issues, big international issues, but also in quotes, uh, something of a culture war, um, we, we have to resolve these tensions. Um, it, is it a view uh, where, you know, what, what we're saying is um, actually uh, we, we accept the view of uh, the left um, and, and we, though, are better technically and we still have our economic differences and that's where it's going? Um, or is it more of a view where, you know, we stand up and fight for some of the things we might have in the past? Um, I take the view um, that classical liberalism um, uh, isn't dead. It, it's intrinsically tolerant of different views. I, I mentioned Voltaire and his famous quote, and that means actually we don't just say, you know what, um, well, we don't like what you say. Um, it offends us, so we're going to shut it down. We, we, we should fight for that more open, tolerant, uh, liberal view of uh, society that at the moment, whether in our university campuses or, you know, on the Twitter sphere, some are seeking to shut down. I'd be lying to you if I said in national and uh, little, little old New Zealand, we've resolved those issues definitively. Uh, I suspect um, the Conservative Party hasn't entirely uh, either. Um, and uh, that'll never be a perfect uh, 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 discussion with, with one set of views, and, and probably, to be honest, nor, nor should it. Um, it's so complex, um, and there's so much to it. I think it's interesting you point out about the, the shutting down. I think it's evident with council culture and how that's used now. It's becoming 
increasingly more apparent to people. Um, something that I found very uh, surprising um, recently with New Zealand um, is its uh, child poverty rates. Um, for a country uh, well developed, uh, it, it has one of the worst, if you like, uh, states of child poverty and infant mortality in the developed world. Um, I, I, the National Party and Jacinda Ardern have both had a, an agreement on the target of halving child poverty in New Zealand um, it, by 2030. Uh, that said, it seems under the current uh, Jacinda administration, child poverty hasn't fallen and, and it's still obviously a huge cause for concern. How would you or the National Party in, intend to reduce the number of children in poverty uh, in New Zealand? Yeah, look, it's a great question. I mean, it's it's uh, one of the um, bases on which the Labour Party under Jacinda Ardern very quickly rose in popularity uh, in the election campaign in 27 was inequality. And a real sense from uh, New Zealanders who were, were national um, that you know what, um, uh, there's people in communities just close to us who are living in poverty. Uh, they can't afford the things that they should be able to. Not only that, you know what, my, my son, uh, they would say, my daughter, they can't get into a home because uh, in New Zealand where we've got a lot of land, uh, where, um, you know, timber is in big supply, uh, we're not building enough houses and house prices are unaffordable. I live in a city here at Tauranga, it's a lovely beachside city with a good port that is one of the most unaffordable cities in the world uh, because income to house prices are so large and they are growing. Um, actually, um, a, 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 a not so secret uh, problem coming out of COVID-19 is those gaps continue to grow actually very sharply. The wealthiest in New Zealand have got wealthier. Uh, in a low interest rate environment. A middle New Zealand who's perhaps had the money because of low interest rate environment um, are out there buying up properties, maybe that third, fourth home. Uh, and yet uh, underneath that, as I say, a growing sense that people can't afford it. Um, for New Zealand, much of this is around, as you get from what I'm saying, housing, real housing problems, um, big promises from Labour, very little action. Uh, in New Zealand, I, I, I won't bore you with the technocratic answers and the 15 things we should do, but uh, it possibly is as simple as saying, you know what, uh, government um, and the private sector and doing the right things to enable the private sector to build more homes. We have some bad planning environmental laws that in theory mean, you know, the birds are protected, um, but what they also mean is we're just down building. And then there's things like that low interest rate environment, um, quantitative easing. Um, in my view, a situation where we've let some of that really go, possibly for the right reasons through COVID-19, but where the long-term implications are very bad actually for the youngest, the poorest, and if I can be so blunt, uh, as a Maori New Zealander, the brownest uh, in our society here in New Zealand. I'll pass it over to Paul, who has a question for you. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, Sunil, for the conversation so far. Simon, I had a kind of um, question on the domestic kind of scene in New Zealand politics. Obviously, we saw before the last election, um, Sindra Adam was propped up for four years by New Zealand First and Winston Peters. And we've seen in the last election, 
that the Greens and also ACT, um, the ACT party have done well um, and kind of still consistently polling around 10%. Do you think um, down the line, those other less kind of outside of the big two parties in New Zealand could make further breakthroughs or do you think they've reached the kind of level which they'll they'll sit at now? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I don't want to say it's all about us, um, but for the ACT Party, which is a great little party, by the way, um, it's it's possibly what you would recognise as a libertarian, to some extent, party, um, to the, the right on the spectrum of the National Party. They had a great election campaign. And the history shows when we're weak, they're strong. Uh, and uh, as we grow in strength, they become uh, uh, weaker. Actually, you know what, Paul, the long run uh, sort of position in New Zealand politics has been one under our proportional system. We, of course, had your sort of system, first past the post, Westminster system. We moved it to more proportionality, has been lots of little parties. And then over time, a narrowing back really just to the primacy of the big two parties, which might not be what you'd expect, might be a bit counterintuitive, but what has sort of happened? Um, I suspect that's still the truth. I don't want to sound arrogant about it. National's got a lot to do to rebuild and um, to give uh, New Zealand a real choice. But uh, I believe we'll do that. I think um, ACT and the Greens, because of their ideology, uh, they will continue to attract votes, but I don't see them doing better than the that sort of several percent mark that you um, that you mentioned. Thank you for that. Thank you. Back, back to you, Sunil. We've had a, a question in from Harry and Maidenet. Um, before the pandemic, um, you mentioned about boosting uh, GDP by lowering taxes and reducing uh, debt levels. What do you think uh, the government should be doing to address those issues now? I am, I'm still of that view. I mean, uh, I'm a Reagan Thatcher kind of a guy. <laughs> and uh, not everyone likes that, um, including in my party. Uh, and these are debates we, we need to have. But I do just believe in smaller government. Uh, yeah, I think in general terms, it's not to say we need a government that's strong in health and education and uh, there'll always be a role from that. I'm not a no-tax guy, but I do think in New Zealand where we have so many small businesses, what gets an economy going uh, is uh, less red tape, less green tape, uh, le less tax. So, you know, people like my wife with her small business feel a confidence to go and say, you know what, I'm going to employ another person. I'm going to invest in that innovation. I'm going to grow this business and in so doing grow uh, our economy. I think, uh, and I be, and I want to be somewhat reticent about this because, uh, you know, I'm not the uh, treasurer, the shadow treasurer, the finance spokesperson for our, our party, and they'll have their views, and they absolutely need to. Um, I'm reading some interesting material over the weekend, though. I think where I'm getting to in New Zealand uh, is that we've done something, yeah, you, you have too, uh, but of really pumping in the QE of record low, um, as we call it here, official cash rate, uh, interest rates. Um, and I worry about those things long-term. I don't think those policy decisions are um, uh, impact-free in the long-term. 
they will have ramifications. Inflation still can be an issue. And so personally, I sit there and look at this government that's pumped in more money um, than we've sort of ever seen. And actually, the economy feels pretty good right now in New Zealand, I've got to tell you. If you're out there right now you, you, you're, and your mum and dad, you're, you're putting in a new kitchen. Uh, you, are, you are buying a spa pool. Um, you, are, you are doing the things that, um, that you want to do. But long term, I worry, I, I think that the quantitative easing actually has to be laid off. I think uh, interest rates at some point have to go up. Because if they don't, look, actually, there isn't the, 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 the consequences, there isn't the risk in the system where actually, you know, um, uh, people just go out and keep buying houses when they don't need them and, and so on and so forth. And people make a bad investment. So I'm for smaller government. Um, I, I think actually less government uh, a stimulus, pumping in money often wasted um, is probably the recipe New Zealand needs to get to sooner than later. After probably some decisions I wouldn't, I wouldn't quibble with around the actual period of COVID-19. They were necessary, but actually we need to get back to market-based principles, uh, a great little country that, that uh, has less tax, less government, uh, more free trade. Well, I think there's a, a lot of our listeners will probably agree with that. Again, we, we actually had one of uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher's cabinet members on our platform uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so she's a, a very revered figure on here. And uh, we have a lot of, again, listeners that are big fans of her. So um, I'm sure they'll welcome that response and answer. Um, but yeah, thank you for your time, Simon. It's been a pleasure having you on today. Um, hopefully, uh, like we were saying before, we can do this again sometime in person. And um, once the restrictions ease and we're able to travel and stuff, it'd be great to have you on our platform again and um, doing something like this in, in the future. But thank you for your time. Well, look, Sunil, Paul, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciated it. And uh, as you say, uh, I hope that um, next time we talk, um, maybe it's uh, uh, in London uh, with a pint or something and, uh, uh, and enjoying each other's com company in person. Thanks very much. Thank, thank you, Simon. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in.